This episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by AGTV. It's a new streaming service from the folks that brought you the American Gospel films. All kinds of theologically sound content from Ligonier, Stephen McCaskill, from Media Gratier, and yes, from yours truly. If you run over to watchagtv.com, you can sign up, and if you use the code RIOT at checkout, you'll save 10% on your entire subscription, and they'll know that I sent you. Watchagtv.com, code RIOT to save 10%. Hey, Les, this is Luke from Illinois. Love the new show. Just wanted to ask, what's your go-to Taco Bell order? God bless. Ooh, this is a sore subject for a lot of people out there. Of all the things that this year has taken from us, one of them is the extensive classic Taco Bell menu. No more seven-layer burrito, no more triple-layer nachos. And then apparently they completely changed their development kitchen, the place where they invent all the crazy Taco Bell experiences that punch your taste buds in the face. Uh, That's all now done over Zoom and a virtual kitchen. How can you create Taco Bell flavors in a virtual kitchen? What is a virtual kitchen? The it, This isn't my favorite item on the menu, but the Doritos Locos Taco is one of the greatest offerings in fast food in a very, very long time. It just, it takes that, you know, classic Taco Bell taco, just take, brings it up to a totally different level. And like, that's what my kids always get. And it totally makes sense because it's... It, just putting Doritos powder on the outside of a taco is such a great idea. But they got rid of the Fiery Hot and the Ranch Doritos Locos Taco this year. And all they have left is the regular nacho one. Lame. I think if I had to pick a favorite item on the actual menu, it's got to be a chalupa. That puffy shell uh, is just, it's just fantastic. But my thing is, uh, whenever my family goes to our local Taco Bell establishment, uh, it's not just a Taco Bell, it's a Taco Bell KFC. And when I'm going through that drive-thru, I always see that Nashville hot chicken on the KFC menu, and that's what I have to get. So uh, my favorite item at Taco Bell is actually Kentucky Fried Chicken, Nashville hot chicken, and man, that's... That's the second best chicken item on any fast food menu. The number one best chicken item on any fast food menu is the Popeye's chicken sandwich. That's right, way better than Chick-fil-A. I can hear you questioning my salvation. That's right, it's better than Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is good, but every time I get Popeye's chicken sandwich, I am just blown away all over again. Like, like literally, I don't, I don't get used to it. Uh, I take a bite of it, and I'm like, how can this sandwich be this good? It really is a fast food feat. Fast food feat. If you'd like to leave a voicemail for the show, give me a call, 772-324-9328. This really is your time to shine. Pause the show, call 772-324-9328 and leave the greatest voicemail that's ever been on any podcast ever. I challenge you. And while you're at it, please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review for the show. On today's episode, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of presenting the good news of Jesus Christ 
to your friends, your family, your neighbors. All that and more today on Gospel Riot. Welcome to Gospel Riot. I'm Les Lanfear. Joining me on the show today is a full-time evangelist. His name's Tony Miano. Tony, thanks for joining me. Les, thanks for having me. I uh, I recently saw something on on Facebook, uh, something about uh, your your old life in football. Well, at uh, at five foot eight and one hundred eighty pounds in high school, uh, I wasn't destined for a long term career in football. Uh, but but as a freshman, uh, we had a tradition in our high school that uh, uh, freshman defensive players would go up against senior offensive players in one on one tackling drills, kind of a rite of passage. And when my turn came up, there was a very large individual by the name of Gary Zimmerman waiting for me with a smile on his face. Oh, wow. Uh, If the name rings a bell, uh, Gary Zimmerman played for the Denver Broncos and the uh, Minnesota Vikings and is now in the Hall of Fame as an offensive lineman. And uh, and so my claim to fame in high school is that I survived a tackling drill with Hall of Famer Gary Zimmerman. Wow. Did you uh, did it ring your bell? Do you feel any effects from that? I still have a bit of a ringing in my ear now, almost uh, 40 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, But you're famous, so, and that's why you're on the show today. (laughs) Okay, I was wondering why. Yeah, that's why. So you are, so you're a full-time evangelist. What does that that look like? Well, what that uh, looks like is uh, I spend most days, um, five, six days, a week out on the streets in my local community uh, engaged in evangelism. I might be outside of an abortuary preaching the gospel and engaging people in conversation there. Um, I might be uh, outside of our farmer's market on a Saturday morning uh, heralding the gospel in the open air. More often than not, I'm standing on a corner in my community somewhere with a large cross that says, stop and talk on the crossbeam and uh, waving at passing motorists and waiting for people to stop and talk. And almost every day, one or more people will stop to have conversations. When you say abortuary, are you talking about an abortion clinic? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I just do not like to use the word clinic with yeah. something associated with with abortion. So yeah, absolutely. I refer to them as abortuaries. So, how much are you open air preaching? Yeah, that's actually changed over the last few years. We moved out here to Davenport, Iowa, uh, to be part of uh, our local church here. About four years ago, prior to that, I was in the Los Angeles area. Now, Southern California, Los Angeles County has three to four times as many people as the state of Iowa. Wow. So I could go on just about any street corner anywhere in Los Angeles County and have a crowd of people to preach to. Mm-hmm. And so when I was back there in Southern California, I was probably doing more open air preaching than anything else. Transition out here to Davenport, Iowa, where the population is significantly less, and they have this strange thing called winter weather. (laughs) Uh, Southern California, we only have two seasons, summer and fire. And so it was a bit of a transition coming out here to the the Midwest. And so now I'm doing less open-air preaching, and I'm doing much more uh, one-to-one gospel conversations out on the streets. So uh, obviously, open air preaching has a stigma uh, in a lot of people's minds. Um, uh, what, what what would you say to someone who 
just thinks that open air preaching is is you know awful and you're it, it, at at best you're annoying people at worst you're calling people names and making Jesus look bad. Yeah, that's certainly a, a caricature of open air preaching, uh-huh. and there are open air preachers. Uh, we like to refer to them as open air screechers mm. who will go out there and simply call people names. Um, using terms of derision against people, pointing out other people's sin, and maybe never getting to the gospel. So there are certainly those people out there on the streets and on college and university campuses. Uh, but there are even more uh, biblically-minded open-air preachers uh, who are out there to do what we see in the Bible from Noah, a preacher of righteousness, uh, through the prophets, through Jesus and the disciples, and now 2,000 years of church history, where we have seen the proclamation of the gospel in the town square and in the open air. We're doing what Jesus did. See, American evangelicalism would like us to think that Jesus was a quote-unquote friendship evangelist, that he was out there making relationships with people and and uh, earning the right to communicate the gospel to people. Mm. Well, the public ministry that we have documented of Jesus was only about three years. Uh, whereas most Christians today will spend three to five years trying to get up the courage to invite one person to church. Yeah. That wasn't Jesus's ministry. They didn't kill Jesus for hanging out with sinners. They didn't kill Jesus for feeding the hungry or for healing the sick. They killed him for what he said publicly. They killed him for claiming to be God. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was preaching in the open air. Uh, Jesus sent out the disciples to proclaim the gospel from village to village, town to town in the open air. Uh, Philip was an open-air preacher, one of the first deacons. Uh, Paul was an open-air preacher. Yeah, he started in the synagogues, but he was in the public square, um, almost resulting in riots at times at places like Ephesus. So while it may be untoward in the mind of society, yeah, and maybe in the, even in the mind of American evangelicalism, open-air preaching is, is biblical mm. and historic. What I want to talk about today— is um, sort of a, a strategy. Um, what what are some of the main things that you want uh, that that we need to communicate uh, when we share the gospel? What's a, 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 a successful gospel gospel presentation biblically look like? Um, but before we get to that, m- maybe you could talk a little bit about um, like courage, because um, that's something I think that's where it all starts with me. I, I go through seasons where I feel very confident. And I mm-hmm. feel um, like it's, you know, it's just on the tip of my tongue, you know, the, the name of Christ. And I see people in need and I have that, that desire in my heart. But there's other times where I just feel like a coward and I have, uh, I just can't, can't muster up the courage. So you have any thoughts about, especially, you know, you're doing open air preaching. Uh, that's, that's a totally different kind of, uh, kind of courage, maybe. A lack of courage uh, or in another way of putting it, a fear of man yeah. is actually a symptom of something else. And uh, this is what uh, what I discovered in my own life some 16 years ago. Uh, as a church planter, I'm preaching every Sunday in a pulpit, and, uh, and I'm encouraging people from the pulpit to go out and communicate the gospel to people. But I wasn't doing it myself. I wasn't out on the streets engaging my neighbors, strangers, friends, family members in gospel conversation. I was hoping they'd come to church or listen to my tape. We had those back then. Hmm. Uh, listen to my tape to 
to hear the gospel. And what I discovered was my fear of man was born out of a love of self. Because when I made a list of all the reasons why I wasn't engaged in public evangelism, and there are many kinds, uh, you know, open air preaching is, is but one way to publicly communicate the gospel. Uh, and it's not the method that's the power of God unto salvation. It's the message within that method. So whether I'm handing you a gospel tract or engaging you in conversation or preaching to hundreds of people in the open air, the power is in the gospel, not in the person or in the way he's doing it. So I want to be clear about that. Yeah. But when I, when I made the list of the various reasons why I wasn't engaging in any form of public evangelism, every one of the reasons had to do with me and my comfort. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the lost. What if I, what if I uh, get asked a question I can't answer? Um, what if I offend somebody? What if I look like a fool? What if I push somebody away? And I would learn that I can't really push anyone away from Jesus because they're running toward hell anyway. So I'd have to catch them in order to push them away. Mm -hmm. um, but every reason I came up with, I had to do about my own comfort, my love of self, and my, you know, desire to not really suffer much in this pursuit of Christ. So uh, I, I we did an episode already on the show about the nature of man. I'm sure you've seen a lot of people with different philosophies when they're out. No, sure. Out on the street. And, and a lot of them will come up to me to let me know that I'm wrong yes, in what I'm doing. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and you said— uh, specifically that you, you you realized that you couldn't push people away because they're right. already running to hell and you're catching them. So how important would you say having a right view of man is going into this? Oh, it's 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 critically important. Um, you know, I, I came to um, love the doctrines of grace and that aspect of theology many years before I started engaging in public evangelism. Uh, and I would, when I started to apply my theology that I love so dear to the activity of evangelism, um, I found that while it's not necessarily easy going out there on any given day, uh, I had a lot more confidence uh, when I knew that I was approaching evangelism biblically which includes, of course, the nature of man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not, when, when I engage somebody in conversation, I know that they're not an atheist. Yeah. I know that they're not an agnostic. I know that they're not a skeptic because Romans 1 tells me that they know that God exists. I know that they're simply suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. So I don't get all tied up in knots um, allowing the unsaved person to be the judge, putting God on trial. God is on his throne. They're already standing condemned. Uh, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. The wrath of God presently abides upon them. They're not, they're not waiting to be convicted of their crime. They're simply, simply waiting for the sentence to be carried out. I know based on what the Word of God says, that they're not seeking after God, hmm. that they're not uh, pursuing Christ, even if they say they're on a journey, even if they say they're investigating 
until God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerates a person, they cannot see those things that are spiritual because they are spiritually appraised. The word of the cross is going to continue to be foolishness to them uh, as an unsaved person because they're dead in their sin. Uh, I don't have to worry about an unsaved person seeing Jesus in me for the same reason. They can't see Jesus in me because they're dead in their sin and blind as a bat spiritually. If, if, uh, if I don't proclaim the gospel to them, I look no different to the unsaved person than the altruistic atheist or the benevolent Buddhist. They can't discern one from another without the proclamation of the gospel. I know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So I'm not ashamed of that. And I proclaim the gospel to them. Um, because I know salvation is of the Lord and God is sovereign over salvation, and God has elected a people that he will save, I don't have to worry about pushing anyone away from Jesus. Doesn't mean I can run roughshod over their lives. Doesn't mean I can be rude or arrogant or unloving uh, toward them. I should speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. Scripture's clear, but I don't have to worry about pushing anyone away from Jesus. I don't have to worry about saving anybody because salvation is not a cooperative effort between God and man. It's not a synergistic uh, relationship. It is a monergistic work of God alone. So my responsibility as an ambassador of Christ is to simply proclaim the gospel to a person, bring them right up to the foot of the cross, and trust God to use that gospel proclamation either as an aroma of death unto death to yes. those who are perishing or an aroma of life unto life to those who are being saved. I was just going through that passage with my kids and family worship the other day, talking about how we are we're carrying a stench with us to the yeah. to, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the this this, this beautiful aroma of life. Amen. Um, it's it's very interesting because I went through a transition where the the Lord works in mysterious ways. But when I was when I when my theology was changing, um. For when I was first discovering this idea that people are dead in their sin and, uh, you know, salvation is of the Lord, like you said, it's not about some free will decision that somebody's making. There's there's something right. spiritual that has to happen. During that transition in my life, I was becoming the most serious about my faith right before that transition, and I was starting to evangelize uh, for the first time. And I would do it everywhere. I'd do it outside of a restaurant. I would do it um, you know, a, a, after church with kids that I, that clearly were, had questions and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that I had been shown to do it was to, you know, run through a certain sort of script. And then at the end I would pray a sinner's prayer with them. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I had so much confidence cause I was closing the deal at the end. Oh and, yeah. And as I was going to bed at night, I was mentally putting more notches on my belt. Um, and then the Lord shattered my entire understanding of who God was and who man was and really changed. Not, not, not to say I wasn't a Christian before that, but uh, everything changed. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't able to seal the deal uh, like I could before. You know, yeah. it, it, it wasn't a sales pitch anymore, and they buy the car at the end. Um, right. It was more like I'm, I, it was just, it felt more open ended. And it it was it was it was weird for me to ha- to have that because 
now all of a sudden going from this confidence of like, yep, I did it to now like, well, all I've really done is maybe just sown a seed and you know, it might not produce anything. And that, that was kind of, a, it was a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around. And it kind of hurt my confidence in, in evangelism mm-hmm. a little bit at first. Yeah. I, I think uh, what you described there is very legitimate. I think many people probably have experienced likewise. In fact, I, I think my story in some ways are similar. I, I, I grew up uh, in, you know, when I first came to faith in Christ, going to a church where, um, evangelism was very much developing relationships with people, maybe inviting them to come to church. If you share the gospel with people, make sure to quote unquote, close the deal. See if you can get them to, to pray the sinner's prayer, get them to make a decision uh, for Christ and, and then try to disciple them. And over time I would find that like you, I was, I was sharing the gospel with people. Um, I was, I, I was getting people to pray the prayer. They might even, uh, visit church once or twice, then I'd never see them again. And over time, they'd end up being worse than they were before I got them to, right. to quote unquote, pray the prayer. Yep. And when I came into Reformed Theology and the Doctrines of Grace, and looking back on that time, what I was doing is I was begging goats to act like sheep. Mm. They, they, uh, they were doing what I wanted them to do. I was pretty convincing in, in my you know, sharing of the gospel. And, you know, 30 years ago or so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the gospel I was sharing was actually the gospel. Sure. Um, I, I certainly wasn't emphasizing the law per se. Um, but, but I was, my, my goal was to get people to pray the prayer and ask Jesus into their heart, uh, which is not unlike a Mormon missionary. The goal of a Mormon missionary is to get you to take a book of Mormon and to pray and ask God for a burning in the bosom that what you're reading is true. Mm. And in the same way, I'm asking people to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into their heart. And if they pray that prayer, just really believe that God came in and did a work. Yeah. And, and I can't think of anyone f- from those years ago where I led them quote unquote into prayer uh, who are walking with Christ today. Now, my own experience, I cried out to the Lord. I prayed. People pray and ask God to forgive their sin. And you know, we we see the uh, we see the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, sadly, many Christians like to point to that story as justification for the sinner's prayer, which it's not. It's a sinner praying. Yeah, it's not a it's not a sinner's prayer. He's not being led by a disciple. Okay, uh, tell Jesus you're sorry. Mm-hmm. Tell him you'll never do it again. Tell him you want him to be your Lord and Savior. You know, ask him into your heart. You know, I, I it would be like let, let's say, uh, Les, I come to you and I say, Hey, Les, I cheated on my wife, and uh, I haven't for public record. Good. Um, I I, <laughs> I cheated on my wife. Um, she kicked me out of the house. I'd really like to get back in. Can you help me? Sure, Tony. Let's go over to the house. Hmm. So you stand off to the side in the bushes. Hmm. Okay, and I'm standing at the door, knocking on my own door. My wife, Maria, opens the door. Yeah, what do you want? I glance to the bushes. Tell her you're sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tell her you'll never do it again. Honey, I'll never do it again. <laughs> Tell her you want to come back into the house. What? Tell her you want to come back into the house. 
I'd like to come back into the house. And then she closes the door. Yeah. Because it's not coming from me. It's coming from less in the bushes. Right. Right. And and that's, I think many people have been manipulated, uh, certainly unintended by Christians, but manipulated into believing that they were saved because they prayed a prayer, but never came to genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Yeah. Where, where do you typically start when you are sharing the gospel with someone? Well, usually I, I uh, enter into the conversation simply by asking the person if they have any particular spiritual beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, and I let them talk for a while. Um, God's given us two ears and one mouth, told us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. One thing I think is important about public evangelism is taking the time to actually talk to a person. Okay. And so I ask them, what are their spiritual beliefs? And that'll usually govern maybe where or how I start the conversation. But, but typically, I, I, begin, um, I begin by letting people know that there are a couple of things that they and I have in common. Uh, we were both created in the image of God. We are image bearers of our creator. Uh, we're, we're not pond scum. Uh, we're not descendants of turtles or monkeys. Uh, we are God's special creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation. We were created in his image. We have that in common. And the other thing we have in common is that we all know it. Uh, creation testifies to not only his existence and his power, but he's also written his law on our heart. We know the difference between right and wrong, not because of how we were raised or when or by whom, but because we were created in the image of God. And as image bearers of him, he's given us a conscience having written his law in our heart. We know it's wrong to lie because the God who created us isn't a liar. And, and I'll, I'll work my way through several of the commandments that way. See, I, again, I don't, I don't start with the presupposition that the person in front of me may be the holder of truth, that the person in front of me uh, it may, in fact, be an atheist or may, in fact, be a skeptic because the word of God is my authority. And God's word says that they're not. And so I never play God's defense attorney in the unbeliever's courtroom. Immediately put them on trial uh, as the convicted criminal. And I do that. I do that by declaring who God is and doing it in such a way as to let them know that I know that they know that what I'm telling them is true. You know God exists. You know you were created by him. And he's written his law in your heart. And so that's that's where I begin. So if you had to make like a if you had like a mental checklist of the the main things that you want to run through from start to finish, maybe maybe you know I, I I'll even use the word a script uh, in my mind. It's not that I have exact words uh, that I want to say, but it's more of a checklist of like the, sure. the the main things I need to get through. So are you starting? Would you say you're starting with who God is, or yes. more of like the the problem with man and God? Well, I, I start with who God is. Okay. I start with the declaration of who God is and that the person in front of me knows who God is. Um, I then uh, explain who man is, that man has been created by God, is an image bearer of his creator. And then I go to the problem man has with his creator, that having God's law written on his heart, he's broken that law sinned against God, and as a result, he stands stands condemned before God. The wrath of God abides on him. At the moment, 
He's not a child of God. American evangelicalism would love to tell the whole world that they're children of God. Yeah. But they're not. They're children of wrath. Apart from faith in Christ, they're children of wrath. And then I explain to them judgment, what awaits them as the just punishment for their sin against God, that they will spend eternity in hell. And they will spend eternity in hell because God is good, because God is holy and righteous and just. And then uh, I explain to them that just as God is holy and righteous and just, angry with the wicked every day, he is also loving, merciful, and kind, not in distinction to his wrath or justice or holiness, but perfectly loving and merciful and kind, just as he is perfectly holy and righteous and just. And then, having gotten to that point, that's when I get into the gospel proper. I, I make sure that the person knows which Jesus I'm talking about. Very, very important. Yes. Um, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, maybe longer, if you mentioned Jesus— most people knew who you were talking about. The second person of the one and only triune God took on the form of human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Most people had that understanding. Not today. Not even among people who profess to know Christ. Mm. So it's very important uh, in my evangelism that I declare who Jesus actually is. Second person of the one and only triune God, uh, with the Father in creation, all things being created by him and through him and for him. Born of a virgin, just as the prophet Isaiah declared some 700 years before his birth, truly God, truly man, without sin. Uh, it's imperative that they know which Jesus I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I went on a missions trip to Peru once uh it was, and it was, it was that same time frame when I was transitioning to uh, a better understanding of theology, and uh, some of the people on that trip, we, we would we would find ourselves in the streets, and they would take it upon themselves to evangelize people, and they would they would literally, some of them would literally just say, "Jesus loves you," and then they would send them on their way, and that was they thought they were evangelizing right. that person. I'm like, what what are you? doing like yeah. you didn't change anything about their thinking you didn't challenge anything uh and you certainly didn't share the gospel with them like so yeah i mean that's obviously like worst case scenario bad example but right. um, yeah and and look god does love his creation yeah. god allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike <clears throat> but god's special familial salvific love is only for his people Yes. Jesus, God does not love everybody on planet Earth the way he loves his actual adopted blood-bought children. But didn't Jesus say, love the sinner, hate the sin? No, he never said that, actually. <laughs> in fact, in fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, where we have that list uh, of things that God hates, he hates the lying tongue. He hates the haughty look. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He he hates the one that that he hates feet that are quick to run to evil. Mm. He doesn't say there that he hates lying. He says he hates the lying tongue. Yeah. 
He doesn't say he hates the shedding of innocent blood. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Yes. And that's part of what makes God, God's love so amazing. And unfortunately, much of American evangelism, American evangelicalism, making God's love so trite and, and uh, bubblegum, you know, junior high boyfriend, girlfriend type love is the failure to announce that this God who is holy hates sinners. Yes. And that makes his love so extraordinary. I'm saved today, not because of who I am, but in spite of who I am. Yeah. And then he loved me enough, not only to save me, but to change me. He doesn't love me just the way I am. Right. So he there loves is that, me in spite of who I was. So there is that balance of um, God. God is angry towards sin. Uh, we could even say that he hates sinners. Um, but but he has he has a people that at the same time in that moment wrath is upon you, but he he loves his people. And, yes. and Jesus is going to do something about that. Sometimes, sometimes um, to help. Now, we're we're talking about theology that's, you know, for most Christians, it's a challenge sure. to get their head around. And you're trying to communicate these things to an unbeliever who's dead in their sin and blind as a bat spiritually. And so sometimes I'll use a courtroom analogy mm. to drive this home. I'll put the person before the judge convicted of a capital offense. And instead of like it is in the United States today, where you get 20 years of three hots and a cot, a free college education, and all the porn you can view on my dime, they're going to escort you into the next room. They're going to strap you to a gurney, and they're going to put you to sleep like a stray dog. But just before they do that, the judge who sentenced you to death stands up from behind his bench. He takes off his robes of authority. He steps down. He says, I find you guilty, you deserve to die, and I'm going into the next room to take your place. Mm. And the judge is strapped to the gurney. He's put to sleep like a stray dog, and you are set free. Mm. And that's a picture of the cross. That's where justice and mercy kissed. That's, and there's yeah, the balance. That's wonderful. Uh, so th- the, the sort of checklist in my mind when I, mm-hmm. when I do this is uh, problem, solution, responsibility. And that might be, you know, there's just lots of different ways to think. About sure. It, but but sure. these are these are the, the huge categories that need to be covered uh, for me. And problem is so it's so important. And people really because you're not offering anybody because we talk about the gospel. What does the gospel mean? It means the good news. And the good news makes absolutely no sense. If, right. If you don't understand what the problem is, if you don't understand what the bad news is. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I lived in a upper middle class area of Santa, you know, in Southern California, um, lived in a small condo in an area of million dollar homes, right? Uh, ours was just this tiny little thing where this little oasis of normal people surrounded by some fairly wealthy folks. And so if I walk up to them and I say, Hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus loves you receive Jesus. And And they look at me and say, well, wait a minute, I've got a million dollar home. I've got a wife who loves me most of the time. Um, My kids are all in karate, football, basketball, and track. I've got three cars in my garage. I've got a 401k. So what? 
I don't need Jesus. Well, yeah, or, or they'll just agree. Yes, he does have a wonderful plan for my life. It's right. going, and, it's and going living, very well. I'm, Thank I'm you. I'm living my best life now. Yeah. 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 And so they, they not only need to understand why they need salvation, hence the problem, they need to know who it is they need to be saved from. Yes. Not only who they need to be saved to, but who they need to be saved from, which is one and the same, God himself. That's right. Oh, that's and God's so... provided only one way for man to be reconciled to God, and that's through faith in Christ. Every human being has a relationship with God. The vast majority of them have a broken relationship because of their sin. And the only way they can be reconciled to the God they've spent their life offending by their sin is through faith in Christ. Mm. So uh, if... if... Because so there's there's that there's that issue there's there's people who who think things are going pretty well for them but um, so h- how would you how would you approach it differently for people who are who, who thinks uh, things are clearly not going well for mm-hmm. them um, it, w- would you would you uh, go about explaining things to them in a in a different way or is there any kind of different sympathy or anything like that that you would have for them uh, usually no okay. because. Whether I'm talking to the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor, there is a commonality between them often, and that is pride. Mm. Rich people have pride in their wealth, and I find that most poor people have pride in their poverty, mm. um, pride in their pride in their deserving of God's wrath. Uh, again, taking people through that courtroom analogy. Oftentimes I'll ask, what would you think of a judge who did that for you? And oftentimes people will say, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm going to take what's coming to me. Which is actually you know, true. Right. Yes. But. <laughs> but, they're, but they're articulating it, articulating it through a place of pride. Right. They're, the poor person is saying Christ's sacrifice on the cross isn't enough for me. Just as the same as the rich person is saying. Christ's sacrifice on the cross isn't enough for me. They may be looking at it through slightly different lenses, but they're both looking at it through the sin of pride. Mm. And and the nuances in that conversation come primarily from uh, how that person in front of me is responding. Yeah, and and that again is why it's important. You know, to listen. Yeah, I'm not a drone. I'm not a robot. Uh, I'm not even, even though I share the same gospel, uh, sounding the same way, using the same terms, the same words, um, sometimes even the same cadence with all kinds of different people. The person in front of me is a lost soul that I'm supposed to love as my neighbor. Yeah, and so, so those conversations will ebb and flow, there'll be nuance in those conversations based on the person in front of me and how they're responding. But by and large, my conversations are the same with everyone, regardless of their background. That's good. That's, that's, I think that's a good thing for people to, to, to remember. Because part of the difficulty, I think, sometimes in, in figuring out how to share the gospel is, is you don't want to be a drone. You don't want to be this, like, you know, I'm clearly just reading a script to this person. But I think it really is important to remember that if if all humans have the same problem and and Jesus says that he's the only solution to this this problem mm-hmm. then there aren't 
13 different ways to tell this story. That's right. You, you <laughs> actually you actually are telling them all the exact same message, but you might, yeah, they're going to have different issues they want to bring up. So the conversation can go differently. But at the end of the day, there's there's not more than one option for, for how to tell this to them. And, and unless that is so important, because while it might be your 50th or 100th time proclaiming the gospel to someone, it could be the very first time that person in front of you has ever heard it. That's one. And and if we if we allow ourselves to think, well, you know what, maybe I ought to change things up a bit. Maybe I ought to um, say this differently or say that differently. I mean, we're, we're always growing. We're always maturing in our faith and in our communication, certainly. But if we get to the point where we're thinking, man, I'm saying the same thing all the time to everyone, and you start thinking of ways to make it sound better to you, the problem is that you're getting bored with the gospel. Yeah. That you're getting bored with evangelism. That this glorious message that saved you is becoming commonplace to you. Wow. So what needs to change isn't the message, but the heart of the messenger. Wow. Yeah, there's so many, so many implications to what you just said. Yeah, that's that's huge. I'm thinking of like famous pastors with Twitter accounts who are who are all of a sudden saying things they weren't saying 10 years ago. And that's, yeah. that's not because they're smarter. It's because they got bored with the message and they have to have new content. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the problem with it. Anyway, let's, let's move on. Okay. Um, so we got, uh, I think, so we're nailing down the problem. They, there's this, this wrath, uh, between God and them because they have sinned against their creator. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, there's, uh, so let's let's start talking about the, the good news. Um, sure. How, uh, how how do you communicate that to to someone who's never heard it before? Sure. Well, um, when I get to that point in the conversation, the good news is this: that God the Father sent His Son to Earth in the person of Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, without sin, born of a virgin, just as the prophet Isaiah declared some seven hundred years before His birth. As God in the flesh, he lived a perfect life from cradle to grave in thought, word, and deed. He lived that life of perfection for some 33 years, a life that you and I can't live for 33 seconds. And yet, though he knew no sin, at a time appointed by the Father before the foundation of the world, God the Son voluntarily submitted himself to the torturous death of a Roman cross. He died a bloody, horrific death he did not deserve to take upon himself the punishment you and I rightly deserve for our sins against God. And unlike Buddha and Mohammed and every other uh, false teacher and every Pope past and every Pope future, Jesus Christ three days later rose from the grave. Mm -hmm. He's alive today. He'll return at a time of the Father's choosing, not as a meek and mild baby in a manger, but as a lion of the tribe of Judah to judge both the living and the dead and the blood of his enemies will drench the hem of his robe. Mm. And what God commands of you, not asks of you, not suggests to you, because God doesn't need you. What God commands of you is that by faith you repent and believe this gospel you've heard. If God causes you to be born again, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not enter into the kingdom of God. If God causes you to be born again, then the reality of that, the first fruits of that, is that you will repent Hmm. and believe this gospel that you've heard. And he will forgive your sin. 
remove it as far as the east is from the west. You'll be reconciled to the God you've spent your life offending. And you'll have the assurance of eternal life, not because you're good, you're a lawbreaker, but because of the goodness of God that would allow his one and only perfect and precious and priceless son to die for a sinner like you and me. Mm. Turn to Christ and live while God's given you time. When I when I first got saved, um, I remember that uh, substitution, that this idea of substitution, was that was the thing that rung loud and clear in my ears, um, and and I remember repeating um, as my friend who I grew up with, and he was just getting uh, more zealous about Christianity again. Uh, he grew up a Christian. I didn't. Um, he shared the gospel with me, and um, I remember sitting there repeating, "Oh, he Jesus." died for my sins because yeah. i'd heard that a million times but now i actually understand what it meant and right you'd think that would be an obvious statement jesus died for your sins but it had just become such a sort of droning thing in the background of culture uh that that i, I just had no idea what it meant and he you know he said jesus um didn't deserve to die because he had never sinned and you do deserve to die but when he died on the cross he was dying uh, in your place, um, and and I was just like, oh, he died for my sins, and they just it just absolutely blew my mind. So when when I evangelize, you know, it's maybe like a, a personal preference of mine, but so I'll, I'll I'll lay out like the history of what Jesus did, the historical events, you know, the perfect life and the the the, crucif- the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, and then I'll stop and say, okay, that's what happened historically. Now, what was he doing? on the cross and then i'll just dig into that because it's it's just so like application of what exactly jesus's death burial and resurrection means um but i I love that you're pointing out the return of christ specifically as a judge as a part of that gospel presentation um because uh that that's something that i that i don't I, i i do say that if you don't if you don't repent um you know hell is your is where you're going and you know i'll say that in whatever way makes sense but no, that's that's very good. Again, because you're emphasizing the very one you're being saved from, right? Is the one yeah. who will save and, you. And I, and I think less part of what we're working against is 50 years of American evangelical tradition of basically painting Jesus to be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, effeminate surfer boy. <sighs> yeah, right. And that's not only what many in the church have as an image of Jesus, but as a result, many outside the church have. Of Jesus, uh, the the greatest act of love, Jesus said, I, "No greater love has anyone than this, and he who lays down his life for his friends." Uh, absolutely, um, but that's not all who Jesus is. Mm. You know, Jesus is the judge. You know, he, they people are going to stand. God, God the Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son, mm. and and so yes, He is the Savior of those who by faith receive Him as. Lord and Savior, whom God has caused to be born again, yes. But if you don't, if you don't turn to Christ, your blood is going to drench the hem of his garments, and he is going to be glorified in your destruction. And I don't want that for you. Yeah, turn to Christ and live. Yeah, yeah, I don't want that for you. That's so that, and that's a, a, a super important thing to be communicating too. Is that the only reason you're doing this? I'm only talking to you about this, not because I want to win an argument. I'm doing it because I I actually care about, like I've been in your shoes. Like Martin Luther says, uh, uh, 
uh, evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. Um, yeah. We, you know, I, I, I know what it's like to be desperate. I know what it's like to think that I, you know, that all the turmoil that's going on in a sinner's mind, I've been there and, yeah. and I, I do, I want you to be set free from this. And, and, and this is another reason why doctrine is so important before I come to, came to understand the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and his monergistic work in salvation, I had to argue with sinners. Yes. I had to convince them that I was right. I had to show them evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence to prove to them that God existed. Instead of simply taking God at his word and simply proclaiming the gospel that God has given us, and trusting the sovereign God of the universe to do all of the work that needs to be done in that person's life. I am nothing but but a messenger. I'm nothing but an ambassador. Nothing but a, a one beggar trying to help another beggar find bread, as you said. Yeah. And and before I came to understand those doctrines, and, and not only because I, I knew them long before I started using them in evangelism, once I saw the disconnect between my evangelism and my theology, and the two came together, I I had so much more freedom in evangelism. I looked forward to evangelism because I I didn't have a win loss column. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell people the only time we fail in evangelism, presuming we're doing it biblically, the only time we fail in evangelism is when we fail to evangelize. Wow, you know, and, and 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 oftentimes when I'm open air preaching or I'm out on the street, you know, a very proud, arrogant, professing Christian will come up and say, "Oh yeah, well, how many people have you led to Christ?" Right. And my answer is, everyone I've ever talked to. They step back, get this, you know, wow, that's arrogant. And then I explain to them that look, I communicate the gospel to to everyone I can, and I trust the sovereign God of the universe to do what he will with that person. And whether he saves them or destroys them, he's good. My work is done at the proclamation of the gospel. Wow. So I, I got into a, um, an actually fruitful Facebook debate with a, uh, with an atheist just yesterday. And it oh. was, it was actually, it was, it was very encouraging. Um, the, one of the best that I've had in a very long time. Um, but he, uh, he was, Basically, so he, he was making these logical arguments about uh, why God is wicked. Um, and in everything he was saying, ironically, was true. Um, he was saying that, you know, God knew the kind of uh, suffering and, <clears throat> and wickedness that would happen, <clears throat> the kind of suffering and, and wickedness that would happen in the world, but and he foreknew it and he still chose to create it. He knew Adam and Eve would fall and he chose to mm-hmm. do it anyway. He knows about every single you know, uh, awful thing we read on the news that happens to children and he still created, um, and he did it. And, and you're telling me he did it all just so his name would be, uh, honored and glorified how selfish, what a monster. And, um, and so I I was sort of at, you know, you're sort of at a crossroads at that point. Not, not really, because I I have these things settled in my mind, but (laughs) the, the, the knee jerk of a lot of Christians would be to start to defend um, yeah. how those things aren't true, and I I didn't do that because everything he said was true. Yeah. Um, so I said the reason 
you hate God. And he kept saying, well, I don't hate God. And I said, no, no, no. We're talking about the character of God. I've laid out the character of God. You, you're accurately representing the character of God in some ways, and you, and you despise it. You actually do hate God. Even though you say you don't believe in him, you hate the character of the God of the Bible, um, and you're saying it blatantly. The only thing you can do is change your mind uh, about this God, and here is the solution to this problem. You, you know, you, I understand that you don't want to face him because he's your judge. You're a sinner. You, these aren't, you know, this is a, it's a very bad idea to run to the judge himself, to run to the police when you're a criminal. I get it. But, but there's actually a, 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 a way to do it where you actually receive forgiveness and the relationship is, um, is restored as you're turning yeah. yourself into the cops. Um, but so that, there's the responsibility part. You've talked about it a little bit, could, but could you dig into that? What kind of responsibility sure. are we putting on the sinner, on the unbeliever when we're sharing the gospel with them? Sure. Yeah. The, um, you know, I've run into many people like that as well, who want to paint God as evil, wicked, because he knew all of these things were going to happen. Um, and as you say, they're attacking the character of God. They hate God. Their, their express hatred for God is all the evidence anyone needs that they're not actually an atheist because they don't hate Santa. They don't hate the Easter bunny. They don't hate the tooth fairy because they know those, you know, images don't actually exist. Right. But they, but they know that God exists. And I, and I explained to the person that, look, the reason why you're so offended by the character of God is that because there is something in you that says you're good and God owes you something. Hmm. But because you have broken God's law, you're not good. That makes you entirely responsible uh, for everything that you receive from God. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll I, I used to build uh, model planes when I was a kid, uh, particularly World War II planes. Really love those. And so I'll I'll say to the person, I, I built a P fifty one Mustang, airbrushed it, decaled it, sanded it, put it on a stand, and I put it up on a shelf. I built that model. Do I have a right to display it for all the world to see? Right. Yeah, sure. All right. I build that same model. And instead of putting it up on the shelf, I put it on the ground and I crush it under my feet. Yeah. As the builder of that model, do I not have the right to do whatever I want with that model? Yeah. Yeah. And what right does the plane have? What right does the model have to say to me what I can and cannot do? with what I've made. Yeah. And who are you, oh man, <laughs> that you would question God who created you? Yeah. You, you're standing here in front of me, you're expressing the hatred for the God you know, and and then you cringe at the, the reality that you're worthy of his just punishment against your sin because you're responsible for everything you've done. Mm. Turn to Christ and live. Yeah, this guy. This guy was basically like setting up dominoes during the conversation. It was great. He was he was like a smart kid. He, he was I don't even know how old he is, but um, but he, he was he said like, what right does this God have to judge me? Blah blah blah. And I it was just like, well, he owns you. So yeah. there there it is. And then he's like, no, nobody owns me. And I'm like, well, actually, you're a slave. It was just like this this perfect yeah. little like set of dominoes. Um, but but anyway, uh, so they have this responsibility as far as their sin goes. But but um, so like let's say we've laid out the entire gospel. We've showed them exactly uh, their need for forgiveness and the 
the dire consequences if they're not forgiven. Um, the solution, the, the way that uh, Christ has satisfied everything necessary to, uh, to bring them out of darkness into light um, and forgive them and give them righteousness. Uh, so at the end, mm-hmm. when we're actually calling them to repent. Yeah, well, I mean, you've just summed it up very nicely. That's what I do. I call them to repent. God has commanded you to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's what God has commanded you to do. Turn to Christ and live while God's given you time. Um, I might ask them the question, depending on how the conversation's going, I might ask them, is there any sin in your life that you love so much that you're willing to die and spend eternity in hell so that you can enjoy that sin today? Mm. Most people will say, I can't think of anything. Right. Other people, I, I have one young lady on a college campus, well, at least a decade ago. Um, she was listening to the gospel, hearing the gospel. Uh, the conversation was very friendly. And I got to that point and I asked her that question and she begins to weep and she says, adultery. I'm an adulterer. Well, repent of that. Turn to Christ. Put your faith and your trust in Christ and him alone for your salvation, and he will forgive you for your adultery. And to the extent that I can discern, she came to faith in Christ there on the campus. Wow. Um, but but yeah, we, I, I think American evangelicalism wants to remove the burden of responsibility from the unsaved yes. person mm-hmm. by getting them to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into their heart. Here, let me carry you through this. Let me do this with you. Let me do this for you. Just say these words after me. Come on. You're you're taking responsibility. And again, that is where our theology is so important. All of that idea of of, uh, leading someone in a prayer, coaxing someone, closing the deal, um, sharing in their responsibility comes from a synergistic viewpoint that the Christian himself thinks he had something to do with his own salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. Yeah. If you believe that you engaged in a cooperative effort with God to save you, it stands to reason that you're going to communicate that same thing to lost people. And you're going to, and you're going to cooperate with them as they cooperate with God. And, and in some ways relieve them of that burden of responsibility. And that's where we get into these notions of, you know, God loves you just the way you are. Come, just as you are. He loves you just the way you are. And minimizing the wrath of God and minimizing the responsibility of the sinner to repent and believe the gospel they heard. It's interesting because that if if we really do believe that it's God who's who's doing it, um may, maybe the the responsibility there there's a responsibility that comes back to the the the, the preacher, uh the the communicator of the gospel. Um, especially uh, if you're if you have good theology, you have you have this responsibility now because if you know that it's not about the person then and it's actually about God who has to work, then now all of a sudden, if you really want this person to be saved, then um, you're in a place where you can petition the Lord Himself. Um, so, pr- praying for someone for the Holy Spirit to actually move, maybe even during the gospel presentation, after the gospel presentation, that that God would actually bring this person to faith. Um, if you actually want them to be saved, then that's a huge responsibility that's placed on us. 
Right. Yeah. That. Yes. And it's. I think it's. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, when when you get to that point um, of the conversation, and there's this desire, you know, to close the deal, so to speak, to shore things up, um, and and to try to get this person to um, to pray a prayer. Uh, the the Christian again uh, is going to try to relieve that responsibility from that unsaved person by leading them in that prayer when knowing instead if we know that god is sovereign over salvation we simply declare to them the truth of god's word we simply declare to them the gospel of jesus christ and we call them to repent and believe that's what we see uh, that's what we see throughout scripture jesus's first sermon was the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel. Excellent. Well, let's take a break, and we'll listen to some voicemails, and I'm okay. sure you'll have you'll have plenty of great wisdom. <laughs> we'll be right back with Tony Miano. This episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by Stonecrop Wealth Advisors, a full-service financial planning and investment advisory firm that focuses on the needs of seminaries, Christian colleges and schools, churches, and various other nonprofit parachurch ministries. Those groups are generally known as small endowment market, meaning entities with tens of thousands of dollars all the way up to $50 million. Stonecrop firmly believes that these assets need to be managed in a manner that is congruent with the mission, vision, and values of the entity. Stonecrop is led by Doug McRae, a board member at a well-known East Coast seminary. He has a background that includes full-time missions work, law practice, investment consulting, and management services. If you lead a nonprofit whose portfolio needs better management, give Doug McRae at Stonecrop a call at 610-628-4545 or look them up at stonecropadvisors.com. Stonecrop's investment advisory services are offered through Stonecrop Wealth Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. This information is intended for informational purposes only. It should not be construed as legal or tax advice and is not intended to replace the advice of qualified attorney or tax advisor. This information is not an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Welcome back. I'm here with Tony Miano, and we're going to listen to some voicemails. Hey, I live in Southern Colorado, and there's a lot of interesting people here. Um, one lady I know, she believes that the Jews are this race of demonic people who are from the beginning called the Archons, and that Christians aren't really Christians, and the gods aren't really gods, and that she also claims to be a Christian and tries to take communion at her church. And so what are ways to witness to a person who is wrapped up in this kind of belief? Also, she's like a really strong conspiracy theorist and believes that Jews control all the other world, and 9-11 and Sandy Hook didn't actually happened and they were all government cover-ups and all this weird stuff. But yeah, thanks for the advice. <laughs> Bye. So I think the question... <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, if I'm understanding properly, the question is, how do you evangelize to people who have a few screws loose? Sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, that cert certainly could be the case. Um, it one, one of the things I do is I... And this usually happens early on in the conversation because we have to establish what truth is. And we have to distinguish between belief and truth. And so one of the ways I do that is I ask the person, what's more important, what we believe or whether or not what we believe is true? Most persons are going to say, well, of course, what we believe. It's okay. 
well, I need to run to the bank when I'm done here today. And so when I go to the bank today, I'm going to fill out a withdrawal slip for a million dollars. And I'm going to hand it to the teller. Now, I've been in that bank many times. Uh, the teller is going to look at the withdrawal slip. And she's going to run the numbers just in case. She looks at the computer. She looks at my withdrawal slip, looks at the computer, looks at me. Uh, Mr. Miano, you have thirty-eight fifty in your account. I can't give you a million dollars. You don't understand. I believe I have a million dollars. And so I would like a million dollars. Now, if this conversation goes on for too long, that nice teller is going to push a little red button underneath the counter. Yeah. And men in uniforms are going to come to take me out of there for attempting to rob the bank. Didn't matter what I believed about my bank account. What matters is what's true. Mm. You know, um, let's say... Uh, African-American young lady walks up to me to engage me in conversation. And we begin the conversation, early in the conversation, we get to this point. And I ask her that question. She says, oh, what we believe. And I said, well, I believe with all my heart that you're a six foot seven Italian basketball player. You're not actually an African-American woman. I believe that with all my heart. Will it ever be true? Well, no. That's right. It doesn't matter what I believe about you. What matters is what's true. It doesn't matter what you believe about God. What matters is what's true. God is true while every man is found to be a liar. Hmm. Truth is that which comports to reality as perceived by the mind of God, and he has revealed that to us in his word. Hmm. So in the end, it doesn't matter what you believe about God. What matters is what's true, and then I begin to declare truth to them. I don't get tied up in knots arguing conspiracy theorists uh, or arguing conspiracy theories. I don't get tied up in knots presenting evidence to show them that they're wrong. I declare truth to them, showing them the truth is what matters, not their beliefs. That's really good. And it's, it's, I think it's really helpful, a really helpful thing for us to keep in mind that uh, we are a, a priesthood of believers that we have that um, it's being a child of God gives you, a certain kind of authority to speak for God, to uh, you can take His word and you can authoritatively speak it forth. So you're you're a prophet in that way, um, right? And so that that means j- just as just as unapologetic as God is when He speaks in the Scriptures, He just says what is true. We uh, as we we don't have to uh, do this dueling worldview thing. We can, right. You know, and, and you had Cy, Cy Tim Bruggenkate on recently, a yeah. good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why presuppositional apologetics are so important in these conversations. Again, we are we are not in a position where we are called to play God's defense attorney in the unbelievers courtroom. God is not on trial. And I will tell people this to the shock of many Christians. Mm-hmm. God's not on trial here. You are, Mm. and you've been found guilty, and you're only waiting for the sentence to be carried out. His wrath abides upon you. Let me tell you why, and let me tell you how that can change, Mm. and declare the truth to them. That's awesome. All right, let's let's do another one. Yeah, Gospel Riot. This is Jason. I'm just curious if I want to share the message of Jesus and salvation with people is it important to have a certain way of doing it or certain things memorized 
or should I just try to be more flexible and uh, as long as I know the gospel, be more of a, a attentive listener and then just try to share the straight pure gospel? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. One of the reasons many Christians don't share the gospel is because they don't think they know enough. Yes. And and they and so they um, they start behind the eight ball by convincing themselves that they have to be an expert apologist, that they have to know everything there is to know about Islam, everything there is to know about Mormonism, everything there is to know about Darwinian evolution, everything they, there is to know about the, the size and volume of the sun. And they don't have that kind of time to do that. <laughs> right. And so it, it, be, it ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that they're not going to engage in evangelism because they're convinced they're never going to know enough. Look, you can't be saved by a gospel you do not know. Hmm. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you are fully equipped to communicate the gospel to a lost person. You communicate the gospel you know and responded to the gospel that saved you. All right, so then you get asked a question you can't answer. Here's your response. Write it down. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But you know what? If you'll give me your email address or if you want to exchange phone numbers, I'll get to work on finding that answer, and I'll get, I'll get right back to you. Look, people are going to ask questions in two different ways. Let's take dinosaurs. Someone walks up to you and says, you know what? I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I can't wrap my head around this idea that dinosaurs and man were walking on the earth at the same time. How does that all work out? Or the guy that comes up and says, all right, preacher man, what about the dinosaurs, huh? You really think the earth was uh, created 6,000 years ago? Come on, dinosaur. Which one actually wants to have a conversation with right. you? Right? Bachelor number one. <laughs> Bachelor number two, my response is typically, hey, if I answer all of your questions uh, to your satisfaction, are you going to drop to your knees, repent, and believe the gospel? Well, of course not. Well, then I'm going to move on and talk to somebody who actually wants to have a conversation. <gasps> oh, no, oh, no, you're, gonna, you're, 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 you're pushing them away from Jesus. Mm. No, I'm not. I'm not going to be one of Satan's pawns tied up in knots for an hour in a conversation that's not going to go anywhere. I'm going to go out and look for someone to have a conversation with. So someone asks you the question, a question, and you don't know the answer to it. Be honest. It, people are smart. They know when someone's trying to snow them, when, when someone is just winging it. Be honest and say, I don't know. And that's not going to push anybody away from Jesus. Yeah, That's not going to keep someone from coming to repentance and faith in Christ. And so what you do is you then make that the object of your study the next week or however long it takes so that when you're asked that question again, you have an answer. And the more you do this, the more you're going to find that the unbeliever's playbook is very, very short. They ask the same questions, maybe in two or three different ways, and the list isn't very long. And as you're spending time talking to people, you will be building your own repertoire of answers to common questions so that when you're asked the next time, you'll be able to give an answer. But remember, more important than answering your question about dinosaurs is being able to communicate 
the hope that is in you. Yeah. With gentleness and respect. The hope that is in you isn't that dinosaurs and mankind live together. <laughs> the hope that is in you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're saved, you already know it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's it. Just such a good reminder, uh, especially talking about um, not winging it and, and being able to admit that you don't know. Um, in Second Corinthians again, uh, Paul talks about how we are uh, we are jars of clay, and uh, we have this glorious uh, the 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 reality is within us. So, and I'm you know explaining this to my kids too is um, there's nothing special about us. There's we uh, uh, Paul's even basically saying like we're we're this useless, ugly, cracked up vessels. We're jacked up on the outside. So the the only reason we're special is because we have this thing within us. And so if we really believe that, then all pride would be set aside. We would actually be humble servants. There, there's a confidence because we have this truth and we are yeah. absolutely stone cold firm on this truth. But we're not confident in our flesh. We're not confident in our own intellect. We're not confident in knowing every single answer to everything and being able to put people in their place and drop the mic. That's not our goal. Our goal is to confidently proclaim uh, what God has said. Yeah. Amen. And you know what, Les, I'm still nervous out there on the streets. I'm nervous every time I stand up on a box or a bench to preach. I'm, uh, I'm a little nervous when someone walks up to engage in conversation because I don't know how things are going to go. And I thank God for it because that nervousness helps me to rely more on him uh, than my own flesh. And it's a good reminder that I'm not all that and that I don't have to have all of the answers. I just have to have the gospel and speak the truth in love. So if don't let nervousness keep you from going out there and being obedient to, to Christ, the, the great commission is for every Christian evangelism while while there are some who might be quote unquote gifted at evangelism evangelism is not listed anywhere in scripture as a spiritual gift it's listed as a command to obey mm. so it applies to all of us so don't worry about being nervous you're going to be nervous pray trust christ follow the spirit go out there and do what we're supposed to do amen uh let's uh let's let's do one more Hey, Les, this is Clay from South Dakota, and appreciate the show. Really enjoying the first couple episodes. Uh, question about evangelizing. Um, how do you consistently get the conversation started? Uh, what are some of the best ways to turn conversations towards uh, the things of God? Uh, thanks again for the show. Great. Yeah, great question. Probably one of the most common reasons why Christians are afraid to go out and do evangelism. How do I start a conversation with a stranger? Yep. Now, uh, Les, I'm guessing you're younger than I am. I'm 56. Yeah, I am. I yeah, okay. Bit. Just a little. <laughs> okay. So when I was a kid, and maybe when you were a kid, uh, certainly I think kids today too, what was one of the first things we were taught? Don't talk to strangers. Mm. Right? So one of the things we have to overcome in evangelism is doing the thing we were raised not to do. Don't talk to strangers. It's going to be bad for you. They're going to drag you into their car. They're going to take you away. They're whatever. So we we have this inherent distaste for talking to strangers. Um, so that that's one. 
the best way to initiate a conversation with a straight with anybody really with a stranger is be honest about what you want to talk about if if you walk up people are expecting you to sell them something if you're a stranger walking up to somebody you've got a reason for walking up to me you know you either want me to buy something you want me to sign a petition you want something from me you want something so get to it tell me what it is so i i make it a point to be very now it helps that i'm standing on a corner oftentimes with a five-foot cross that says stop and talk kind of obvious what i want to talk about but but when i'm not when i'm not doing that i'll walk up to people and i'll say hey my name's tony i don't want to sell you anything uh, I'm a Christian and I'm out here today talking to people about their spiritual beliefs. Can I talk to you? No. <laughs> that's like the worst thing that's going to happen to you in America. Someone's <laughs> going to tell you no, at least for the moment anyways. Someone's going to tell you no. So my response to that is to put a gospel tract in their hand, a paper missionary. It's going to be able to go where I can't and have the conversation I'm not going to be able to have today. Yeah. All right, so... so so I always try to be honest with the person about who I am and why I'm approaching them. I want to I want to make them feel comfortable because they're probably nervous too. Who is this old guy walking up to me? What does he want? And so I tell them right away what it is that I want. I want to talk to them about Jesus. Um, sometimes uh, bringing up current events is helpful. Uh, I, I I don't love when tragedy happens but i love being on the streets right after tragedy happens because people are speaking thinking about their own mortality yeah you know a, a mass shooting a, a plane crash the death of a famous person um a, a, a fatal car accident in their own community people are naturally thinking about their own mortality that is a wonderful time to talk to them about their own mortality Hey, did you hear about that uh, crash at Wisconsin and Kimberly the other day? Two people died. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? I'm a Christian. Here's what I think. Hmm. Be honest with people. That's the key. Get over your own self-love. Get, get over yourself. Make the soul of the person in front of you more important than your comfort. And be honest with them about what you want to do and what you want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, that, that's something that I had to learn the hard way too. Is like not trying to, uh, uh, you know, get in the back door of a conversation. Um, not 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 you know present it as one thing. I'm just trying to be friendly, and a, this weird weird guy is just trying to be my friend all of a sudden <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, right. But yeah, so like you know, like the things you're saying. So the 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 way that I sort of go about it is I'll just say, um you know, w within the first few seconds of a conversation, I'll ask, the, I'll just, you know, since that's what I'm there for, are you a Christian? And mm -hmm. if they, great, depending on that, that answer, you know, you sort of, sort of go from there and can I, can I explain the gospel to you? Just like really yeah. straightforward. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's so good. Um, thank you so much for, for being here. Is there anything you got going on that you want to let people know about or just encouragements, books, anything like that you want to share? Well, I mean, if if I can mention um, in that podcasting world, too, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, I've got a podcast called uh, Street Fishing Podcast. Excellent. And what I do is I have, um, I'll have people out on the streets looking for people to put on the phone so I could share the gospel with them. Uh, and then after I have that conversation, 
I'll then chalk talk the conversation. Here's what I did right. Here's what I did wrong. Here's what I could have said better. Um, here's why I went this way instead of that way. And I'll also do that with conversations that I've had over the years that I've recorded. And so you can find that anywhere. Just type a uh, street fishing podcast and they can find that. And you have a, a pretty great YouTube channel also. Well, I don't know about great, um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, if they just type my name in YouTube, they'll they'll find it. Um, I probably have close to a thousand videos up there of open air preaching and one to one conversations, and and uh, some people have thought that it's been a helpful tool to them uh, to help them in their communication with the gospel. Excellent, Tony Miano. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Les. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.